Blog Talk Radio. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. second time in my life, and I doubt very seriously he's going to remember the first time, but it was way, way back in the 1980s, and he was on Catholic Answers Live, and I called him and asked a question because we were talking about uh, the doctrine of extrathesium nullisalis, which is there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. And he was explaining the doctrine of invincible ignorance and how we must believe that it is possible for a non-Catholic or Protestant to be saved. And I called him and said, okay, I, I, I accept that. I understand that. How would that work? Without the sacrament of confession, how could a non-Catholic Protestant be saved? And he said, well, the same way that you can, by making a perfect act of contrition. I doubt very seriously he remembers the call, but I'm going to try. Carl Keating, welcome to the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So I don't guess you remember the call, do you? Well, I think I've had that same call maybe six <laughs> or eight dozen times. I would so, imagine so. And of course, if it happened before last week, I probably wouldn't remember anyway. <laughs> Well, it had a big impact on me and your book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, years and years and years ago, had a big impact on me. And uh, I've always admired your work, and uh, it's a true honor to have you on the show tonight, and I want to thank you for coming on. Well, I'm pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, you got a new book coming out, 1054 and all that. Now, I have not received it yet. I will be getting the book. I've not received it yet. I'm just going to take a wild guess and, and guess that the schism with Eastern Orthodoxy is contained somewhere therein. Am I right? Well, yes. And, of course, you're drawing <laughs> that conclusion from the, the number 1054 in the title. Yep. Uh, my book is was actually inspired by a very well-known book published about 90 years ago in London called 1066 and all that. And it was a spoof history of England. And the two co-authors said in their introduction that what they hoped to convey in their book uh, was the understanding that the average Englishman after years of school, you know, having been out of school many years, but the average Englishman still remembered of what little English history he had been taught. So that book, 1066 and all that, uh, had as its central point the year 1066, which was the year of the Norman invasion of England. Mm -hmm. And it was a very humorous book, and I think it's never been out of print in nine decades. So uh, it was that book that inspired me to write my book, which is subtitled A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. And in this, 
I give actual history, but uh, sometimes with some tongue-in-cheek comments about mm-hmm. the goings-on. And the book has uh, got a baker's dozen of illustrations in it, uh, not drawn by me, but by a professional illustrator, uh, that portray some of the characters mentioned in the book. Well, Carl, I'm very curious as to how you got a book on Catholic history down to 140 pages. So, so what did you just highlight the most important things? Or again, I haven't received the book yet. So that's that's my first first curiosity. Well, yes, I mean, in 2,000 years of church history, there are plenty of personalities and events and heresies and so forth that one could pick to discuss. But I chose ones that I thought would be representative in certain ways of the history of the church. Uh, granted, it's, it's only 140 pages, uh, and I've got 111 segments in it. I don't call them chapters. Uh, and each one then is averages about a page, a little more, uh, in length. And uh, I divide the book into four historical segments. Uh, after a, a preface, I indicate that church history, like the history of the West after the fall of Rome, particularly, uh, can be divided into roughly four periods of 500 years. So mm-hmm. the first one I call the early years, from A.D. 33 to 500. Then that is followed by the Dark Ages, 500 to 1,000. Then the Middle Ages, 1,000 to 1,500. And then the modern era, 1,500 onward. And within those uh, four segments of the book, I try to give uh, an approximately equal page count. And within that structure, I choose uh, people and events and various episodes uh, to highlight. Uh, Some of the topics covered are covered in a single paragraph. Others uh, take a full page or more. And uh, as I said, then there are, I think, rather cleverly drawn caricature style illustrations in black and white uh, throughout the book. Carl, when I go back and I've read, and I'm certainly no expert on Catholic history, but when I've gone back and read about Catholic history, some of the most predominant heresies that happened through the history of the church seem to be making a reoccurrence today. We're seeing more and more uh, 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 denominations and cults that are raising some of these uh, heresies kind of out of out of the grave, so to speak. Uh, one, one, for example, is uh, the uh, divinity of Christ. Another um, that predominant one, well. There are several predominant ones having to do with with Our Lady. Why do these heresies keep coming back? I think they keep recurring because they're popular, and they're popular because they're easy to understand. I'll, I'll give you one example. Every time uh, when I go to Sunday Mass, I pass a certain street corner a block or so from my parish, and normally there, at the early hour that I go, there already is set out a table, folding table and some chairs and a literature rack. And all that is manned by several Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Now, the Jehovah's Witness religion began in 1879. So that's a century and a half ago, roughly. And a key element of the religion is the rejection of Trinitarianism in favor of Unitarianism. Based on the Arian heresy, right? Yeah, not the Arian heresy so much, although that's included in a different sense. But their main doctrine is also, in a way, the mirror image of Christianity's main doctrine. Our main doctrine is the Trinity. It's about God's own inner nature. Everything else flows from that. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses reject that, uh, as, for example, Muslims reject the Trinity, they have a a Unitarian God, uh, because 
among other things, it's a lot easier to understand and to accept the notion of a solitary, lonely God rather than a God who is composed of three persons. Mm -hmm. You have to think about that a while. You have to take insights from people more astute than you in religion. You have to go back, for example, if you're going into history, and you discover that in the early centuries, one of the chief issues was whether God was a trinity or just a unity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was resolved eventually in the early centuries. But as I say, it's one of those beliefs, uh, this rejection of Trinitarianism, that is popular because it's easy to understand. And a secondary reason might be it distinguishes your group, whether you're Muslim or Jehovah's Witnesses or what have you, or Unitarians for that matter. It distinguishes your group from the generality of Christians and puts you on a sort of a self-made pedestal. Uh, you're, you can say, well, all those Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant, are wrong. And we're the only ones purporting to be Christians who mm -hmm. have gotten this right, even though our church only began a century and a half ago. So yeah, there's definitely a lure to pride. I understand that. Yeah, there's that. Uh, but I think the simplicity is the big attraction. The, there's no way any of us can understand the Trinity thoroughly because it's, technically speaking, what's called a mystery. A mystery is not to be used in the sense of a detective story, but a mystery in theology is something that we would know nothing about unless Christ revealed it to us. And so he has told us certain things about it, and we can know those things and we can reason from them, but we can never know everything about that. For example, we can know everything about the multiplication table. There's no mystery in that, even though some people have trouble getting the numbers right. But in theory, mm -hmm. we can know absolutely everything about the multiplication table, and so entirely encompassed by human reason. But the mysteries of the faith, such as the incarnation, the hypostatic union, and the trinity, are things we can understand to the extent they're revealed, but we cannot ever understand them fully. Uh, there's a story, as you may remember, about St. Augustine, who ended up writing a lengthy treatise mm -hmm. on the trinity. Yeah, I think and I know where you're going that, with this. <laughs> yeah, one day he's at the seashore. Uh, yeah. you know, he lived in North Africa in the town of Hippo. And he's at the seashore and thinking about how we can write this treatise. And he notices a, a young boy playing in the sand. And the boy had dug a hole. He took a large shell and he went repeatedly to the water, filled the shell with water, brought it to the hole, emptied it in, back and forth and back and forth. And after a while, Augustine approached him and said, son, what are you doing? He said, sir, I'm going to empty the sea into this hole. And Augustine laughed and said, you can't do that. The sea is so vast, the hole is so small. And at that moment, the child revealed himself to be an angel. He said, yes, Augustine, but it is easier for me to empty the sea into this hole than for you to understand the Trinity completely. Just write what you can as well as you can, and that will suffice. And so Augustine went on and wrote this wonderful book. And then centuries later, Thomas Aquinas built on what Augustine had written and so forth to our own era. And, and yet still, the Trinity has only been understood in part, only to the extent that we can reason from what Christ told us about the Trinity. So mm -hmm. uh, if you think about Augustine and Aquinas and all the other theologians through the years who have been giving more and more thought to this one dogma, you can see how complicated it really is and how, how tempted people would be to say, that's just too much for me to bear mentally. I'll just go for something simpler. And that's why things like the Unitarian position, the anti-Trinitarian position are so popular and always have been, and they always will be. There's always going to be some group out there who's going to make it easier for themselves by chucking the authentic faith or at least elements of it. Mm -hmm. Carl, the reason why I thought you were, you were uh, alluding towards Arianism when you first brought up the Jehovah's Witnesses is because from my vantage point, it seems like the, the difficult thing that they have getting their mind around is Jesus. 
because there there are times in the scriptures where Jesus almost seems schizophrenic. <laughs> there are times when he's very very clearly uh, uh, expressing his humanity, which is created and thus inferior to the Father. But there are times when he's also expressing very clearly his divinity, which is equal to the Father. Uh, it just seems to me that outside of the church, that would be impossible to understand and, and, and comprehend. Yeah, you know, in my book, 1054 and all that, I introduce Arius this way. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the whole section. It's very short. So early in the 4th century, there was a priest in Alexandria named Arius. He was a smart fellow who may have studied too much Greek philosophy. He found himself unable to understand how Jesus could be at once God and man. Arius concluded that Jesus was just a man, though the best man ever. This was called doctrinal simplification, and it proved to be very popular. Arius himself proved to be very popular and a nuisance. The next segment of my book goes on to the Council of Nicaea, which talks about Arianism and refutes it. Uh, after that, the next segment is called Arianism Gets the Imperial Help. turned out that uh, the emperor uh, sided with the Arians, and so that made a big difference. And then later on, I turned to uh, a discussion of Athanasius very briefly. But Athanasius was the theologian, philosopher, and saint who was assigned basically to be the chief opponent of Arianism and did a great job in that, even though Arianism continued to exist in one form or another, actually for centuries before mm -hmm. it, it seemed to die out. But then, but then it's come back in our own time. You talk nowadays to many people, even professing Christians, uh, who was this Jesus? And they say, oh, he, he was the best man ever. And that's as far as they go. There are a lot of them who won't say he was both God and man because they can't figure out how that can be. Uh, everybody in our experience has a single nature, human. Nobody we've ever met walking on, down the sidewalk has two natures, human and divine. So it's sort of natural for us to default to what we're familiar with. And mm -hmm. yet that's not what Jesus is or was. So, uh, so Arianism, again, like uh, anti-Trinitarianism, is indeed one of those heresies that keeps popping up throughout history. It seems to go away for a while once it's well refuted, and then there seems to be no con continuing historical record of it. And then sometime in, in the future, it comes back in some other form with some other label. But nowadays, with people uh, universally almost, ill-educated in their faith, whether Catholic or Protestant, uh, it's very easy for them, really having never thought in theological terms, to fall into a kind of, of quasi-Arianism. And we always have to keep our, ourselves aware that that's almost a natural human tendency. And in our kind of era, when there's so much mental disarray, we should be expecting a lot of people to fall into these kinds of mental traps. Mm -hmm. Carl, I, I like the term that you just used, quasi-Arianism, because to me, I see a kind of a cognitive dissonance going on with some people who will say that, okay, Jesus is fully human, Jesus is fully God, but Mary's not the mother of God. To me, that's a, a walking contradiction because but Mary only gave birth to the human Jesus. Well, now you've just made Jesus into a pizza. He, he's not fully human. He's not fully God if he's half human and half God. Uh, isn't that kind of a – doesn't your term quasi-Arianism kind of apply there? Well, actually, you know, you, you're mentioning whether Mary should be called the mother of God. Uh, and that, of course, comes down to the question – you know, people are not – a woman is not the mother of a nature. She's the mother of a person. Mm -hmm. So Christ has both a divine nature and a human nature, but he does not have a human personhood, only a divine personhood. So he's one person, but with two natures. So if we ask, who is it, the who, not the what, who is it that Mary is the mother of? We would say she is the mother of the person who is 
the second person of the Trinity. If we were to ask, what is she the mother of? She would say, she is the mother of the God-man, Jesus, who is both God and man at once. So there's a distinction in the terminology. And we have to be careful on this. Person actually comes from a technical, is a technical Greek philosophical term. It's come down to us in our modern time. It almost, it's, it's so loosely used that it's easy to, to, to say, well, gosh, Jesus was human, therefore he's a human person. No, person has to be understood in a strict theological sense, in which case we, we would understand that he's only, uh, have a, he only has a single person of, that, of the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't have a human personhood. Uh, and, and, I've, and I've seen, just this last week, I saw somebody on a comment online uh, saying that, well, if he's, if, he's all, if he's truly man, he had to be a human person. And so there's a confusion in that person who, who probably never had given thought to whether the word person has a loose or a, or a technical meaning here. The other thing you were getting to in this is that uh, the next big heresy of antiquity after Arianism was Nestorianism. Uh, and I mentioned in the book that Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople. This is in the year 428. And he caused a big stir by saying that Mary should be called the Christ bearer, but right. not the God bearer. Christotokos, not Theotokos. Right. He wanted to emphasize the distinction between Christ's divine nature and his human nature, but I say he overdid it. Uh, people weren't happy with him. A general council was called the second one at Ephesus in 431. And basically the, the question was, which tokos was right, Christotokos or Theotokos? And the story showed up, made his argument to the bishops, and they all voted against him, basically. And then he went off to a monastery in the desert where some years later he died. Uh, but his heresy didn't die with him. Nestorianism is another thing uh, where Christ is, is certainly divine, uh, but we must understand his divinity and his humanity in such a way that Mary is not to be called the mother of God. But as I said a few minutes ago, if we understand a single personhood in Christ, not two persons, not a divine person plus a human person, then the only person Mary can be the mother of is the divine person taken flesh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we say, who is she the mother of? It's got to be the second person of the Trinity. Who is God? Um, so I think these two heresies, Arianism and Nestorianism, uh, are representative of that slew of heresies in the first five centuries, say, that really preoccupied the church. Uh, the church is, was having to deal with what scripture was not explicit in explaining. And this is where the perspicuity of scripture that many Protestants are argued for shows that it fails historically. It, mm -hmm. Perspicuity means that scripture is plain in its meaning on its face. But if you look at scripture uh, with respect to the personhood of Christ, the dual natures of Christ, the status of the Virgin Mary, uh, who, which person was she the mother of, those kinds of questions are not that clear from scripture. I mean, if you accept them, then you see them in scripture. But if you don't accept them in a good conscience, you can actually argue scripture to your own way. Scripture was never meant to be a catechism like our catechism of the Catholic Church. It was never meant to be uh, a textbook. Its purposes were other than that. So right. it required the church through its magisterium to refine and explicate the understanding of these things. And that took centuries. So we can say that in those first 500 years until the fall of Rome in 476, basically that period of time, was when the work the church was working out who is God, who is Christ, and as an auxiliary thing, who is Mary. And so those are sort of the things that occupied those early centuries. And um, 
I'm a firm believer that in the in the arena of apologetics, I'm a firm believer. Take it all the way back to uh, sola scriptura. I just believe sola scriptura is the is the foundation of saying that it's all built on. If you bring down sola scriptura, it doesn't matter if you're debating a Baptist or a Seventh Day Adventist or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever you're debating. Uh, the foundation is sola scriptura. Do you agree with that? Uh, for the Protestants, yes, necessarily, because the whole point of the Reformation was to dissociate yourself from the teaching authority of the church as manifested in the Pope and the bishops in union with him. So if you get rid of that authority and you still need an authority, what authority is left? Well, not your local minister. Uh, everybody understood that at once. So it had to be something else, and the something else they went for was Scripture. The irony, of course, is that Scripture itself nowhere teaches sola scriptura. If that idea, sola scriptura, were the foundation of Christian epistemology, if that's the way through which we got to know things, it would seem very weird that the source you're pointing to, Scripture, doesn't even mention sola scriptura. Right. Uh, so, the, and then another thing that goes beyond that is. Not only is the scripture not mentioned sola scriptura, it doesn't even define what scripture is. Now, I, I come across a few uh, gentle souls of the fundamentalist persuasion who said, well, I know what scripture is. The table of contents shows me what books belong in scripture. But of course, the table of contents was designed centuries after the Bible was in right. use. You, you look back a thousand years, the Bible, the Bible did not have a table of contents at all. So how do we know that the books that we have collected in the Old and New Testaments are, number one, inspired, number two, belong in the Bible, and number three, are not accompanied by any books that don't belong in the Bible because they're not inspired. How do we know that we have the full Bible and, and nothing that intruded itself into it? How do we decide that? Well, Scripture itself doesn't tell us because it doesn't really have a, a table of contents that is divinely inspired. So... Right. How do, you know, how do you figure that out? So the, the sola scriptura position is fatal in two regards. First, you can't even know what scripture is unless you have an external authority that is infallible and can tell you with Christ's own authority which books belong in the Bible and which don't. And then second, even if you get past that somehow, you still got the problem that sola scriptura as a teaching is not found in the Bible. I would actually go further than that because in, in debates that I've had on Sola Scriptura, I, I would say, okay, all right, so you believe that this scripture uh, on on sin says X, and I believe that it says Y. Well, how do we resolve that? Well, the scriptures themselves tell us how to resolve that in Matthew 18. Take it to the church. <laughs> so that church must exist. There must be a church that has an authority to resolve these disputes uh, because the, even if we concede that we know what the canonical books are, we still have to get to the point where they're translated correctly and interpreted correctly. And obviously, Sola Scriptura doesn't get you there. You wouldn't have 40,000 denominations. So how do you resolve the differences? Well, Scripture provides a remedy for that and get to the church. So Scripture itself refutes Sola Scriptura. You know, my book is a lighthearted look at the history of the Catholic Church. It's a book about history, accessible to anybody. It's a humorous book. I mean, if you don't have a sense of humor, I recommend that you don't read the book because you won't get a lot of the things that I say. If you've got a sense of humor, I think you'll appreciate it. But uh, I've always found that history, church history, is the most sobering of disciplines. You know, when I wrote my first book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, which appeared now 35 years ago, and, and it still sells well. When I wrote that, I had in mind first, for my audience, the Catholic, but secondarily, the Protestant, particularly the fundamentalist Protestant, but other Protestants also. And so I deliberately style my book in a way that would appeal in its argument to the Protestant. So 
in nowhere in the book did I rely for proof or argument on papal decrees or conciliar decisions mm-hmm. because Protestants don't accept their authority. Instead, I relied on three things, scripture, early church history, and common sense. And I found in the years following the publication of Catholicism and Fundamentalism that church history is really a powerful um, proof in favor of the church. Because I think, as, as I said earlier, we can say that many people are in good faith interpreting passages in the Bible quite differently. For example, among Protestants themselves, there's a dispute as to whether young children should be baptized. Some Protestants say no, the, the child must be of age, uh, have a sense of reason, be able to accept Christ as a Savior, and then he can be baptized. Others will say infants can be baptized, as in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox way. So you've got this variance here. Those two groups of Protestants are looking at the same texts, but they're concluding from them different things. So how do we how do we resolve this kind of thing? I mean, St. Paul, for example, a couple of times mentions a baptizing whole household. And I think there's a strong, strong scriptural argument to say, well, households normally would have children of various ages and often young. Because remember, back in early days of the church in late Roman times, the population was fairly young. A lot of people died young, uh, although people lived to be advanced in their age. Most people that you come across would be younger family members. I mean, the husband or wife would not necessarily be all that old. So it would be likely that they would have younger children in the family. And so right. when and St. Paul said, you know, I baptized whole households. Well, that would include other than the father, servants or slaves at that time, uh, other workers that might be living there, and children of whatever age. And Paul never says, I baptize whole household except the children under seven years of age. Right. <laughs> he never right. says that. Okay, so I think that's a pretty good scriptural argument, but I can understand where a Protestant might say, well, maybe the households that he was baptizing in their entirety didn't consist of any that had young children. Okay, so since Paul wasn't explicit, we have to give the Protestant arguer a little leeway there. But what I would go back to then is early church history. One of the things we find is that baptism of children was disputed in the earliest centuries of the church, but the dispute was a curious one. It wasn't whether children who were very young could be baptized. It was whether it was legitimate to wait until as long as eight days after birth to baptize a child or whether right. the child had to be baptized immediately at birth. That's the question. Right, the problem the circumcision model. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, because no, nobody, you know, the Jews never waited seven years or 12 years, at, say, at the bar mitzvah to circumcise the boy. You know, he was circumcised right away. So uh, so the only dispute really in those early centuries among the Christians, who at this by this point, you know, we're all using scripture that we have today. Uh, the only dispute was, can we wait one day after birth or eight days after birth? You know, that was it. Right. It wasn't whether... Uh, you had to be an adult before you could be baptized. Right. So when when you look back at early Christian history, I discovered uh, in my in my years as an apologist, I found that uh, early Christian history, and especially the testimony of the fathers of the church, those early Christian writers, are powerful and most well-read, sincere Protestants uh, who end up reading the fathers of the church. I won't say maybe maybe most is not the proper term. A large number anyway, who turned to the reading of the church fathers in early Christian history for the first time in some serious way. One thing they, they see is that the church of the first few centuries was not the Protestant church. All the all the morality, all the doctrines, all the habits and customs have a straight line from them to modern Catholic practices. See? Uh, and that's in a way, that's that's disconcerting. In a way that the occasional vagueness of Scripture is not to them, because they can always argue around a passage in Scripture that seems to be taken two or more ways, in good conscience. 
But when you look at what the early Christian writers wrote, they were all writing from the same basic perspective. You know, do you, do you baptize a child at birth or a week later? Well, that's pretty clear, and there's no there's no evidence that any child was was that there was a dispute about you know baptizing children at all. You know, obviously many people came into the early church as adults because they were coming from paganism or Judaism or something else. But when you're talking about whether children could be baptized, there was no dispute other than this, you know, how many days after birth should it be done? That was it. So that's why it's one of the reasons I think that studying church history is so important. And that's why I wrote 1054 and all that. It's meant, it's intended as a book it's, that's for people who haven't studied church history in depth or, mm -hmm. or with considerable attention. Uh, I mean, I mentioned I've got hundreds of facts in here and dates and names and so on. Everything is historically accurate. But uh, admittedly, you know, I put it in a, in a way that's easy to, to absorb, easy to understand, and, you know, with, with a good dollop of humor. And I think, uh, as I said earlier, unless you have no sense of humor at all, I think you get a kick out of the book. And, uh, and I hope we'd be inspired to move on to more substantive uh, works of Catholic history. Our guest tonight is Carl Keating, and the number to call in if you want to call in is 515-602-9655. We have a caller, and it's one of our uh, lead apologists here at the Four Persons. Luke, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Wow. Uh, that's what you uh, are doing right now is just awesome. Uh, Mr. Keating, uh, I was uh, baptized Catholic as a baby, but uh, as I got older and started to uh, learn my faith, uh, you were one of my go-to guys in uh, Catholicism and fundamentalism. It was uh, like uh, you uh, were in one year and uh, Scott Hahn was at the other with uh, all of his cassette tapes. And uh, that really formed my uh, beginning to see scripture as a seamless fabric. And, well, uh, Luke, uh, Luke, I, I, Luke I really let me say this. That. Luke, let me say this. If you're making a reference to cassette tapes, I've got some rough idea of how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it's a uh, uh, YouTube basically, you know, formed, you know, uh, my understanding of things. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, that was the main reason I was calling in. But uh, you, you were discussing the sola scriptura, and uh, uh, a, a lot of the times I just, you know, uh, I retired as a lieutenant from a prison system, and, uh, you know, I was uh, basically a, uh, a judge in the system, and uh, from uh, infractions to, to new felonies, and we judged things by the preponderance of the evidence. And uh, through this, I... I I'm observed that Protestantism is more emotionally driven in the way they see the scriptures instead of more reasonable and logical driven. And an example of this is, you know, how they all believe they're guided by the Holy Spirit in their interpretation. So if they have feelings of the love of Christ and at the same time they're following a certain interpretation – they get into this quagmire of thinking that this love is securing their understanding. And so through this, they develop you know, a, a strong cognitive dissonance. And this is one thing I, you know, I try to overcome you know, with them by just simple, simple logical deduction, such as uh, when they talk about solar scripture, uh, scriptura, I would say, okay, show me your verse and your exegesis on that verse and how it, do, it doesn't go against the hundreds of verses showing an authoritative church. So at that point, yeah, they kind yeah. of yeah. – <laughs> they, 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 they find themselves uh, uh, in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Luke, you know, I, I, I think, I think you're, you're perceptive in this and that there's a limit uh, for nearly all our Protestant friends – in what they're able to squeeze out of the text or out of argument. Uh, and so many of them end up relying for their, the, 
with the positions they hold on a kind of emotional satisfaction that they feel when they read scripture and adopt what they perceive to be its its proper understanding. But there's a problem with that because if you rely on an emotional proof, so to speak, you then have really no argument against those missionaries who come to the door and say, may I talk to you about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon? Because when those come to the door, and all of us have had Mormons come to the door, I'm sure, one of the things they do is they'll offer you a Book of Mormon, say, please read it, just read, start some small part. And I think what will happen, they say, is you will know it's true because it will be what the Mormons call a burning in the bosom. That is, you'll have a nice internal feeling reading this text, and that will be proof to you that the Book of Mormon actually is inspired scripture. Well, that's not actually how we know something is inspired. Uh, and, and for the same reason, you know, we, we'd have to argue that the Muslim with the Koran would make the same argument, and the Protestants with the scripture made the same argument. Uh, but we don't determine the truth of scripture, its interpretation, or even its inspiration by the fact that we read it and have kind of swelled up sense inside of peace and calm and serenity and so on. That's, that's not the way these things work. I mean, there are people who are not religious and get the same feelings by reading some fine poetry. And yet everybody will agree that the poetry itself isn't, isn't inspired. It's just very well-written poetry. So, mm -hmm. so, so actually the, the irony is it, of, it, of what you mentioned, Luke, where so many Protestants today uh, don't even know the arguments in favor of their position. Instead, they fall back on a kind of emotional sense, a feeling they get when reading Scripture. Uh, that methodology is equally used by Mormons or Muslims or, or other people. Uh, and if, we, if you don't think that the Mormon faith is established by this burning in the bosom, then you can't argue logically that the Christian faith is established when you have a, something similar happen to you when you read the Bible. That's a very good point. And uh, I see that as, you know, for the Protestants, the Holy Spirit is an expression of God's love while they think it's a manifestation of God's truth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is outside of the pillar and foundation of truth. And if it was a manifestation of God's truth, they would have the same faith as the disciples of the apostles. And I would express the idea, okay, so either the apostles lied to their disciples or Protestantism is not true. Because you cannot have this entire body of faith. You, know, you cannot have the establishment of the priesthood, belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, the Mass as the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, uh, the authority of the church. Ignatius did not lie when he said that his desire is to do the will of the church at Rome. Irenaeus did not lie. If he says that you must be to the church at Rome in order to keep the true faith. So we go against logic and going against this logic. I, I, I can only see their process. If they you know, are truly in love with God, they're living as humble souls. I can only see it as cognitive dissonance. Other than that, it's disobedience. Yeah. Let, 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 you mentioned Ignatius of Antioch. Let me read the very short passage about him that I have in 1054 and all that. I, I wrote, one of the earliest Catholic writers was Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in Rome in 107. As he was being taken to Rome under guard, he wrote letters to seven local churches that he passed along the way. Among much else he said, Ignatius noted that the Eucharist is, quote, the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh of which suffered for our sins, the flesh which the Father in his goodness has raised up again, end quote. This explicit and early affirmation of the real presence seems to be why there has never been a Baptist church 
named after Ignatius. So, uh, again, I recommend going back to the fathers and the early church historians and reading. Look at their arguments. Look at what they talked about. So here, Ignatius has these seven epistles that he writes to these churches he passes while being dragged by the soldiers to Rome. Read them th through them. They're short. And there's not a single one that could not have been written, in essence, by a pope from the year 1300. Uh, it's, it's the same faith, and it's distinctively not the Protestant faith. No, it's amazing. And uh, I'm not going to take up your time, but I, I'm just going to leave you with one thing. And if you could address it, you know, after, after I go offline, that, that would be beautiful. I see that the major uh, roadblocks for Protestantism and truly not understanding Christianity is not having faith in the mystical body of Christ and what it truly is. And uh, I, I'd like to address that, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and give you guys your time back now. Okay. No, thank you, Luke. Uh, I, think, I think that's a good point. Uh, I almost don't have anything to add to that because I, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's a point that simply makes sense. Uh, Protestantism has within itself, of course, much that it took from the religion from which it departed. It's added some other things because when you drop out certain Catholic beliefs, holes are left and you have to fill them with something uh, if you don't otherwise just ignore them. Um, so Protestantism is one of those things that's so near but so far. And of course that varies in the brand of Protestantism we have. But I, I think that uh, Protestantism today is being seen more and more by Protestants as pretty much having run its course. Uh, it's petering out. You can look at the Episcopal Church in this country, the Anglican Church, as it is called elsewhere, uh, and it always seems to be innovating in some way that was never within historical Anglicanism and spiraling further and further away from what it once was, ending up as um, nothing that anybody would go and die for. And so mm -hmm. uh, the, I think the, the average Protestant today, more than ever before in the history of his religion, is sensing that it's reached a dead end. Whereas Catholicism, for all the problems we have, uh, and we've got you know people in the church, even clerics in the church, who are not with the program, so to speak, uh, and who, whose uh, faults and misconstruings and sins even come to public attention and are embarrassing and scandalous. But, of course, that's always been the case in the church. Uh, but there's something about the Catholic Church that strikes the heart in a way that no Protestant church does. And it's more evident today, I think, than ever in the past. As I say, even though we've got problems, Protestantism is circling down in the logic that it is stuck with. And uh, I think this gives us a wonderful opportunity for evangelism. Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right, Carl. And me and Luke are going to be starting a series actually on Monday. We're going to be delving into the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And it's very interesting because I remember when I was young, when I was a young man, I, I grew up in an area where there were a lot of uh, anti-Catholics. There was a lot of anti-Catholicism. And I was kind of a target, being a being a Catholic. And, and uh, you know, they, they would hand out their, their, you know, their little Bibles. Oftentimes it wasn't really a whole Bible. It was the New Testament and Psalms. You remember the, the little green ones that you used to leave in the hotels? And when I, I opened it up, when I opened it up and read the Gospel of Matthew, it, it had just the opposite effect on me. <laughs> How can you read this and not be Catholic? I can't. I, I I find it difficult how to understand how you can get through the Gospel of Matthew and believe in faith alone. Uh, well, you, you know, you I think it, John. I think in these cases, we always have to keep in mind that most Protestants 
uh, have been lifelong Protestants, and they've been brought up sitting at the feet of ministers at their churches who are giving a very constricted account of what Scripture really is about. Uh, you know, you, you uh, I remember the time when, when I had, uh, I'll go back to these people, uh, two Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. And uh, there were two women. One was a former Methodist. The other was a former Catholic. So I think you can figure out which one I zeroed in on. And mm-hmm. they offered me their, their version of the Bible. And I opened it up and it said, why don't we look at John 6? And in John 6, we have the story of the promise of the Eucharist. Uh, you must eat my flesh and, and drink my blood or, the, blood or there's no life within you. And our Lord in this chapter goes through basically saying the same thing several different times. And at the end of it, verse 64, near the end, there's an allusion to someone. Already earlier in the chapter, um, some of the Jews said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then some of his disciples, people who had accepted everything that Christ taught up until this point, were told that they left him and they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And they walked with him no more. The only place in Scripture where anybody who's a disciple of Jesus leaves him for a doctrinal reason. But then in verse 64, there's an allusion to Judas falling away there. Right. Uh, so, so you've got, you've got this chapter, John 6. So when, when, the, when the Jehovah's Witnesses ladies came to my door, I said, let's open up your version of the Bible. And let's turn to John 6, and let's read this together. It was a passage they had never gone through. They had never had it discussed at their church meetings. It was simply glided over. Because how can you read that and not basically say the Catholic understanding looks like it makes a lot of sense? And my understanding has some pretty weak legs. So... These ladies were an example of a very partial teaching of Christianity from their ministers. And so I think that's largely true for Protestants in general, not just people in in sects like the Mormons or the Witnesses, but Protestants in general. Most of them have have simply gotten what they've been taught from the pulpit and what their, their parents have taught them, who also got the same stuff from the pulpit. And if the ministers in the pulpit are teaching a restricted form of Christianity, which they necessarily must do, given that they're Protestants, uh, and, and a somewhat skewed version of Christianity, which, again, they have to do because that's what they accept, then it's not surprising that uh, you're going to find not a few Protestants who, on their first independent and private look at certain books in Scripture, Matthew would be a good example, suddenly have what that old commercial on TV used to say, it was like a V8 experience, you know. Ah, I could have had mm-hmm. a V8. Well, and, and they, they look at it, something that, you know, the book of Matthew has been referred to by my minister a zillion times. And now I look at it and I say, but I'm seeing something here that is disturbing to me because it doesn't yeah. comport with, with what he had been saying. And so uh, I think we're seeing more and more of that. And more and more Protestants are turning not against what they've been taught from the pulpit, but they're opening their minds to reading other things like church history, uh, like the fathers of the church, uh, and even they're reading scripture with some fresh eyes. Well, I think that what Luke said is is absolutely uh, dead on. I like the way he puts it. You look at the the entirety of scripture as a seamless fabric. Uh, uh, One perfect example uh, of what you're saying is when Protestants throw out Romans chapter 4. Okay, let's read Romans chapter 4. But let's read Romans chapter 4 in the context of Romans chapter 2. You can't just pretend like Romans chapter 2 does not exist. Then we understand where, okay, in Romans chapter 2, it's very clear that works have something to do with salvation. And in Romans chapter 4, it seems to be saying the opposite. Well, is Paul contradicting himself in two different chapters? No, he's talking about two different things here. One, he's talking about the works of the uh, the Mosaic law. And in the other one, he's talking about the works of the moral law. So 
I think I, I am agreeing with you that I'm seeing more and more and more of their broadening and their understanding things in context. I think a lot of this has to do with the way that uh, one of the good things that's come out of the technology of the last few decades, uh, that the idea of invincible ignorance, uh, I think, like Luke says, is becoming more and more not a possibility or, or less and less of a possibility mm. because the access we have to information is unlike it's ever been, right? Right. I mean, sure. I mean, we both mentioned Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, it wasn't too many years ago. If you wanted to read him, you'd have to go to a library, take down a, a fat book from a, a series of 20 or 30 volumes, and flip through it to his particular epistles, those seven that he wrote. Mm-hmm. That would that would take a lot of work, and almost nobody bothered to do that. But now you can simply look them up online from the comfort of your home and have them in front of your eyes in two minutes. So now when you or I or Luke or someone else will recommend reading Ignatius, anybody can do that for free. And and that's and and that's a kind of breaking of a dam of ignorance, if I may put it that way. It's it's unknown yeah. ignorance. People people don't know that they're ignorant of these things. But once you say, look, it costs you nothing, go ahead, spend ten minutes reading Ignatius. And of course, if they spend ten minutes they'll end up spending hours because He's so fascinating, but uh, it's so easy now. So I think the modern technology is, yeah, it's like poking a lot mm-hmm. of holes in the dike. You, you don't have enough fingers to plug them all. Right. You mentioned to Luke that he dated himself by mentioning that he remembers cassettes. Well, I remember eight tracks. So what does that say about me? <laughs> hey, I, I remember hieroglyphs. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, but the so, point uh, is, look, Let's go back to that eight-track age. Let's go back to that eight-track age. For you and I to have a conversation across the country, we're 3,000 miles apart from each other. For you to have, and, and I to have an hour-long conversation with each other uh, 3,000 miles apart, back in 1978, it, it would have been so cost prohibitive with the long distance charges or, or what have you. And and now you can, with something that you hold in your hand, you can have a real time video conversation with somebody literally halfway around the world. So like you said, the, the access to that technology is, it's, it's mind boggling. And yet it's, it's sad that so many people use it for such terrible things. And, uh, yeah, well, well, I, I see we only got a couple of minutes left, and, and, I, and I want to praise and also caution on the use of technology because, of course, the, the caution part is, and this is something we're all susceptible to, uh, it's so easy to get distracted and pulled off some other direction. I keep remembering that line from one of T.S. Eliot's poems where he says, distracted from distraction by distraction. Right. And, and that's, that's true. But as I said a few minutes back, uh, the technology allows us access to these ancient writings in particular that would have been burdensome to get to even 20 years ago. Right. And, and I think more and more people are, are learning about ancient writers like Ignatius, like Athanasius, like Augustine. Maybe for some of them, some of these writers are, are first-time impressions. And so they have the chance now to... Um, you know, look them up. So one of the things that I hope to do when I was writing 1054 and all that, which, by the way, can be obtained through Amazon, uh, one of the things I intended to do was to introduce very briefly some of these ancient writers so that somebody reading this book and, you know, I think laughing at it and laughing along with it uh, would nevertheless be inspired to go look up some of these ancient folks and find a whole new methodology to understanding the Christian faith. Right. Carl, um, we did put a link in our show notes for people to get the book. Give a real quick plug for how people can get the book, some of your other titles that they can get, and uh, yeah. where they can get all your all your materials. Well, all my books can be had at Amazon. I've written a couple, you know, 20 books or so. 1054 and all that is available in multiple formats, hardback, paperback, 
ebook and as audiobook to four different formats. And, uh, I, you know, I think any, any any one of those will be appealing to somebody. As I say, it's a shortish book. Uh, it's got a fair number of illustrations that I think are quite cleverly done. And I think it's something that uh, will really excite, especially those Catholics who maybe have been hesitant to look into church history. Uh, but I think this might be the ideal entry for them. Awesome. And your website is? Well, I'm not even going to give the website because it's it's out of date. So I don't want to send people there at the moment. It needs okay. to be revised. Um, so, but as I say, you can find almost all my books listed at Amazon. Okay. Carl, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's uh, been a highlight of, of our show, and I, I really am truly grateful. Uh, God bless, and you have a wonderful weekend, sir. Thank you, John. It's been a delight to be with you. Take care.